Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. LAist Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. Happy Friday and happy holidays. We're going to do something a little different this week. After 13 years, the sequel to Avatar, the highest grossing film of all time, is out. We're going to devote much of this episode to my conversation with filmmaker James Cameron about that new movie, Avatar, The Way of Water, I Promise no spoilers. I'll also be talking to KPCC's Suzanne Watley about the verdict in Harvey Weinstein's sex crimes trial here in Los Angeles. For the second time, he was found guilty of rape and sexual assault, but the jury was unable to reach a verdict on several counts. First, though, my conversation with James Cameron. I've been following James Cameron's career for years, and I always look forward to hearing him explain not only his passion for storytelling, but also the ways in which filmmaking technology has evolved in service of those stories. I even visited him on the set of the first Avatar movie, which was unlike any set I'd ever seen. There was no one inside a huge and empty room. Instead, it was just Cameron moving a camera around, but on a widescreen monitor next to him, his camera moves were immediately integrated into a fully composed shot, complete with actors inside a computer-animated world. It is tough to underestimate the stakes that are riding on the success of Avatar The Way of Water as the movie theater business grapples with disappearing audiences. But as you'll hear, Cameron still has faith in audiences coming out to the multiplex. We spoke the Thursday before the movie premiered. Incidentally, Cameron missed the L.A. premiere of the film that week because he tested positive for COVID. He's better now. We connected on Zoom. I'm going to start with something that I would say is the prequel to Avatar, The Way of Water. And no, it's not the first Avatar. Instead, it is this. You see the reticulation inside this thing? Look at that. I have no idea what that is. That's what I love about this stuff. Every single dive, you're going to see something you've never seen before. And you might even see something that nobody's ever seen before. That's, That's Aliens of the Deep. And I think this is me looking at what we nicknamed the Space Bagel. Yeah, it's like a deep sea jellyfish. It yeah, looks it was like about two meters across, and it's in the jellyfish family. It's been seen once before in the Pacific, but we were in the Atlantic, so we don't know if it's the same species or not. It might have been a new species. But to me, it feels like it's character research and development for the Absolutely. new Avatar film. That and even yeah. some of the mechanized combat machines in the new film look like some of the crabs you brought up to the surface uh, from very deep below. And I'm wondering, is there a connection between all of that deep sea exploration that you've done and what we see in this film? I had that in the back of my mind when when we were designing uh, what we call the gill mantle, which is the kind of angel wings that they use, the kind of Navi scuba system, you know, in the film. Um, so yes, it was a combination of deep stuff and just the shallowest, most, uh, you know, most of the beauty, most of the biomass, most of the biodiversity is up near the top of the, you know, what we call the water column, which 
people call water, uh, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, the coral reefs and some of the best dives I've ever had were in 15, 20, 25 feet of water. So it's really, it was just everything I've, I've taken in and observed across my entire diving life, which is at this point, 52 years, over half a century of, of diving. And I, I always get into the water with this anticipation, but there's also just this exhilaration that I'm going to, I'm going to be feeding what's important to me kind of spiritually, if, if you even want to get onto that kind of level, that psychological level. Because I could just be in a school of fish or a school of sharks and just zen out, you know, especially free diving. Because free diving, you really feel all you all you do is you hear your heartbeat and you hear maybe little clicks and sounds around the reef, but you don't hear all the, you know, from the from the scuba. And man, you really just feel connected with nature and not even with nature as it stands right now, but with nature back through time. It's almost a fourth four dimensional experience because you think this has been around so much longer than us and our little kind of fart in a frying pan of civilization is nothing compared to deep time. It feels a lot like that's the middle third of the movie, which is largely set underwater. And that's where a reef dwelling clan live in some sort of oceanic utopia. And as I was watching the film, I almost didn't want to leave there, even if there's a larger story that's a little bit beyond the uh, reef that had to be completed. And did you feel the same way? Because it is a world that we're immersed in that we've never seen before. And it's not essential to the narrative. It, there's a lot of story in there, but it feels like we're just in this world that I guess I didn't want to leave. And I wonder if you didn't want to leave it either. It was actually one of the, one of the major kind of discussion points around editing the film, you know, and I knew structurally I was basically doing the same thing as Titanic and the same thing as Avatar, which was have this soft middle act where you're taking your time and you're enjoying the development, a bit of character development. It's very scenic. And then all the hard yards come in, in act three. Act one is set up. So act two and all three of those films requires a kind of um, consensus amnesia, right? We have to just forget that bad shit's coming. And we just stop and smell the roses and enjoy where we are right now. And all three of those films work exactly the same way. And I had the same argument on all three films. With Disney, it was a much softer argument than it was with Fox because they were extremely supportive and they wanted to see it my way. But there was this consensus exactly where everybody in the test cards said the movie slows down is exactly where everybody in the test card says we liked it the most. But no one at the studio could make the cognitive leap that it was because it slowed down. And I had the same argument on the first Avatar when they start flying around we're just in these kind of beautiful long montages of, of flying and falling in love and beautiful scenery. It's like, well, let's get through that. Let's get through that. Let's get the, you know, let's get the Jeopardy story going again and let's not hang around. I said, no, we want to hang around. People will come back again to hang around. And it's a different kind of approach to narrative progression. You have to know you're doing it and you have to know when you're overstaying your welcome. And that's, the hard line to find. There are a couple of scenes, very short scenes, about two minutes worth, that I actually wish, in a sense, I had hung on to, but you gotta know when you've stretched the tether too too far. 
I remember meeting with you several times when you were working on the first Avatar, and to me, the technology then was astounding. How you could move a camera through a virtual world on an empty soundstage, for example. But it's obviously evolved quite a bit since then. Rather than get into the technical details, what have those advances meant to you in terms of uh, your ability to tell a story? Well, you know, speaking as a writer, I, you know, I propose dialogue, I propose scenes, but it's all about how the actors execute it. It's all about what the actors bring to it, the truth of their characters, what they make you feel. I think ultimately, at the end of the day, and I'm, I'm, I'm really seeing this more and more as I do more work, it's all about how you feel. It's not about what you're thinking. You know, what you're thinking is part of it, but how you're feeling is the most important thing and how you feel, especially as you get into the third act and it it progresses. So the most important uh, technical advancements for me were not about the water and figuring out how to shoot underwater and all that sort of thing, because we knew that was going to be our challenge and we knew we had to do that. It was about the refinement of that performance capture process so that nothing was lost. You know, Jake says nothing is lost, but our mantra was nothing is lost from the actors. I wanted to be able to look the actors in the eye and say, be as subtle and internal as you want, as you would be in real life. You know, don't think about having to act for the back row of a live theater audience, for example. It's not about amplification. It's actually about Every single thing you do is scrutinized as if it were a close-up. So when we come to do a close-up, we, you know, feel, you know, trust the process. And I wanted to be able to say that to them and then deliver, you know, so we spent a lot of, a lot of time and energy, tens of millions of dollars, improving the facial performance and body performance, hand performance. And I'm very, very happy with the results. I look at what Sam and Zoe did and Sigourney, Stephen Lang, it's just all there. It's just all there. And you feel these people, you know, it, it's like, it's such a weird thing to be doing a movie in such a circuitous way to get back to a simple thing that you could do on camera. Right. Just, I mean, we're doing it right, right. now. I, you know, I see your face, you see my face. It's, we're, it's, we go, we go the long way around to get back to zero, except that it's zero, one plane of existence up where these are impossible characters that couldn't be done with makeup. They're luminous, they're attractive. By luminous, I mean their eyes, they draw you in. They're, they're dreamlike. And the more real they look, the more dreamlike it becomes because it's a, it is a, I guess I'd call it a cognitive dissonance that says what I'm looking at is impossible, but it looks so real. I must be dreaming. As was the case in the first Avatar film, the new movie has a variety of messages about stewardship, stewardship of the planet and stewardship of the natural world. Without giving anything away, there's a scene that is essentially Pandora's equivalent of shark fin soup. We're going to kill an entire animal just to get this tiny piece and we'll throw everything else away. It's a metaphor for, for shark fin soup and just for our general kind of the havoc that we wreak to extract things. You know, that little bit of gold, that you extract in a gold mine and cause vast, you know, eco devastation downstream with mine tailings and effluent and so on. It's happening in the Amazon. I mean, that's a metaphor for so many things around the world. And it's also a metaphor for how First Nations people viewed, you know, the colonizers they came across and devastated the buffalo, devastated the forests and so on. For what? You know, for things that, that they didn't value. It didn't make sense to them. 
the value it's a clash of value systems right so yeah that was our eco crime beyond which there must be justice coming up more of my conversation with writer director James Cameron Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Now, let's get back to my conversation with James Cameron about Avatar, The Way of Water, and also his thoughts on the future of the film business. So much has changed in the theatrical world since the first film came out, and there's obviously a lot riding on this film. The LA Times quoted a a theater chain the other day saying, this movie will make or break our fourth quarter. But I'm wondering just in terms of how audiences experience or don't experience films right now, you know, the big hits are doing okay. There's nothing else at the box office. There's no middle. There's no bottom. And how do you react to that as somebody who I suspect, like me, loves seeing movies in a theater, that that model has changed to only favor movies like Wakanda Forever, Top Gun, and I suspect your film. What's your take on the whole business right now? I think we're in an interesting time. It's not necessarily all bad. I think it's been bad, obviously, for theaters. It's the first I said this to Adam Aaron, the, the head of AMC, and this was back when the pandemic first happened. I said, this is the first true existential threat to the business that we love. Because, you know, so many things had, had come along historically, starting with television. And I remember people were pronouncing cinema dead back in the, you know, in the early 60s. And then again, with VHS and beta and then VOD and Blu-ray, you name it cable. Uh, There were so many times that cinema was sort of pronounced dead and it just kept zombieing on just fine, you know. And the first real existential threat was the pandemic, because the the one thing that we needed for cinema was the ability to gather. And the pandemic switched that off right away. So it was no longer about these other ideas of, 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 oh, well, you know, the cinema represents a better picture, a bigger screen. People can have big screens and beautiful pictures and good sound systems at home. The fundamental difference was that ability to gather, to get up and go out and gather. And when that was taken away, all of a sudden I thought, this could be it, guys. You know, and I was I was a bit zen about it. I thought, okay, I'm now maybe laboring to complete something that's a dinosaur and the comet just fell, you know, and the ash is starting to rain down. You know, my poor brontosaurus brain can't quite quite, you know, get my, my mind around it. But then I thought, you know, look, I'm a storyteller. I'll still get a gig. You know, it'll just be on streaming, right? But I, and I started to give a lot of thought to, you know, what is the fundamental difference? And I, I think that all these arguments that everyone's always used about you want to go have a communal experience. I actually think it's bullshit. I think if you want a communal experience, go to church and sing with the choir. And that's a communal experience. 
when you go to a movie theater, there's always somebody annoying around you, munching their popcorn too loud, rattling their stuff, talking to their friends, farting, coughing, whatever it is. It's like you can keep your communal experience. But what that group experience does is it creates a social contract which says the movie will not stop for you. Mm-hmm. And the second you take the remote out of somebody's hands, you've just created a different psychological relationship between the viewer and the art, right? Because what, what you, you are now selecting for when you get, get up out of your house and you go out in the cold in the winter storm and you pay for your parking and you go into the theater, it's to subject yourself willingly to an unbroken, highly focused experience in a highly cluttered, multitasking, multi-screen world. It's our meditation. It's our collective meditation on art, on the discourse, the public discourse, right? So that isn't politics. It isn't all that other crap. It's, it's kind of escape from all that noise and clutter. And the more I think about it, the more I think I'm, I'm actually right about that because people want this. They're coming back. They're braving people coughing around them to have an experience that they've missed, that they've been craving, you know, so I think it's more, and yes, the presentation is part of it. Absolutely. And I really lean into to that part of it with the 3D and the big screen and the laser projection and the Atmos sound and, and all that. And the design of the movie, all the things that are visually seductive, that's part of it. One of the other things that's happened over the last couple of years is there's been a reckoning in Hollywood and culture more broadly about representation, about how women are treating pledges to change, the fact that women and people of color get fewer opportunities in front of and behind the camera. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on your responsibility as a successful white male filmmaker to help change things and bring about change, even in the way that you cast a film or or hire department heads. We cast... You know, we we cast a number of people of color from diverse backgrounds and different language groups in the first Avatar and carrying on in, into the to the second one and, and downstream. That's something I've always cared about. Uh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to work with uh, my fellow showrunner on, on Dark Angel back in 1999 and, and 2000. And we had a very diverse cast well before our time. And we, we had a, a Latinx lead in Jessica Alba and uh, even, you know, hanging a series, a major series, an expensive series for its time on, you know, uh, a, a lot young Latin female was a big deal. I mean, I don't want to say it was as big a deal as Uhura in Star Trek, but I think it was a big deal. This was in 1999. And uh, we're trying to show a different kind of future, a future that was of the real, the real people, you know, not this kind of made up Hollywood world, which we weren't interested in. Um, so, you know, that was also a motif for us when we cast, we cast Avatar. Um, I think subconsciously I, I had more, I had more white actors playing the the colonizers and oppressors just because by the way, that was history. And I, I don't think I really, I don't think I really was that aware of it. It just made sense to me at some kind of subconscious level. Um, if I had it to do over again, I, I would have had more representation in the live action characters as well. But this is something, this is something that I I feel I've been conscious of, you know, maybe ahead of the curve a bit, but I also acknowledge that, you know, I'm an old white male. I'm 68. 
I'm white. I'm Canadian. I'm like beyond white. So I get it. You know, I get it. And the, and the one, the one thing that has been a bit of an epiphany for, for me over the last couple of years is I don't get to explain myself if somebody has a problem with the choices that I've made artistically. I have to sit and listen because the wounded party is never wrong. If that's how they feel after all that, that they've been through historically, I, I don't get to explain my intention. I just have to sit and listen and try to do it better. Right. What was the biggest creative challenge in making this film? I would say the blank page. Right. We just did the highest grossing film in history. Now I'm sitting there. Day one of the writing process looks like this. Fuck. <laughs> Cut to four hours later. Fuck. You know. Cut to four years later. <laughs> well, yeah. So that was in 2013. So my way through that is to just start writing anything that comes through my through my brain starting with the day jake sully woke up what happened the next minute after he after he opened his eyes and the knobby body went oh shit that worked let's go get drunk you know or whatever and then like like just drive onward from there see what happens follow the other characters see what happens in their minds and then i just started putting all these notes together and pretty soon you're kind of clicking along and ideas are starting to pop and then a story starts to form etc cetera, etc cetera. So that was a big challenge. And then I brought in other writers to work with me on that, which I hadn't done on the first film, just to share the ideas and get more inspiration and to break the story. Because it was a, even from the get-go, I knew I wanted to make at least a trilogy. It's now, it's now four films. So uh, I wanted a room. I wanted people to be a sounding board and to, and to share the burden. I'm going to ask you this last question. And it's more a statement than it is a question, and the statement is wonder and how important wonder is as a filmmaker and to an audience. I think it's more critical to an audience than, than most people in the business give credence to. It's a little bit been my stock in trade, especially with these two Avatar movies. It's very important to me in my life. You know, I go to the bottom of the ocean, I have a sense of wonder. I swim around on a, in a shallow scuba dive or free dive. I have a sense of wonder, a sense of curiosity. The question is, how do you, how can you transfer that feeling as an artist to an audience? You know, through music, through design, through 3D, experientially pulling out all the stops. You know, if I could do the the Krell version of perfect creation, you know, and just immerse people in a matrix-like version of an Avatar movie, I would do that. We don't know how to do that yet, but you know, maybe we'll figure it out someday. Maybe you'll figure it out for Avatar 3. Oh, I don't think so. Avatar 3 is barreling down the mountain like a train okay. will break. Avatar 5, then. <laughs> okay, Avatar 5. Avatar The Way of Water is in theaters now. If you feel safe getting out, I'd recommend you catch it in 3D. And if you can, see it in IMAX, too. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. 
VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. And finally, here's my weekly entertainment news chat with KPCC Morning Edition host, Suzanne Watley. We spoke on Tuesday, the day after a jury reached a verdict in Harvey Weinstein's second sex crimes trial. The jury in the Los Angeles trial of Harvey Weinstein convicted the former studio chief of rape yesterday afternoon. And the panel of eight men and four women returns today to the courtroom to hear arguments about aggravating factors. Weinstein currently faces about 18 years in prison when sentenced based on the three guilty verdicts, which could be more depending on how the jury weighs those aggravating factors. Joining me to discuss the verdicts and the trial more broadly is KPCC's arts and entertainment reporter and host john horn good morning john good morning suzanne first thing what did the jury say well let me first say we're going to be talking about sexual assaults and that includes some explicit language that might upset some listeners that said it was a split verdict but the important fact is that weinstein was convicted of rape forced oral copulation and sexual misconduct involving a woman known as jane doe one those were the three convictions the jury was unable however to reach a verdict on several other counts notably charges involving jennifer siebold newsom the wife of california governor gavin newsom when she was a 31 year old actress 17 years ago she said weinstein raped her the jury voted eight four in favor of convicting weinstein on charges of rape and forcible oral copulation of siebold newsom it also voted 10 to 2 to convict weinstein on a charge of sexual battery against another witness the former actress Lauren Young. And I'm going to note here, too, that we are using their names because they have spoken publicly about their experiences. And then the jury acquitted Weinstein on all counts involving another woman. What happened to Jane Doe 1? This is an incredible, incredibly upsetting story. She is a foreign actress, and she's testified in herring detail about how Weinstein showed up at her hotel room door unannounced when she was attending uh, Los Angeles Film Festival in 2013. She said that Weinstein forced his way inside her room, even as she tried to fend him off, and she even showed him pictures of her children. But the more she protested, the more aggressive he became. He eventually took her into her hotel room's bathroom, bent her over a sink, and raped her. He asked me if I liked it, she testified. I wanted to die. No. My goodness. Uh, What is going to happen about the charges on which the jury was deadlocked? Well, the judge in the case, uh, Lisa B. Lynch, declared a mistrial on those charges where the jury was deadlocked. D.A. George Gascon said his office will decide whether to retry Weinstein on those counts. And I'm going to add Weinstein, who is currently 70 years old, is serving a 23-year sentence for his 2020 rape conviction in New York. And his earliest possible release date is November 2039, when he'll be 87 years old. I'm also going to add that he is appealing that conviction. Have the witnesses, John, said anything publicly about the verdict? They have indeed. And this is where the Harvey Weinstein case is about something much more important than Harvey Weinstein, I would say. Rape is the most underreported and underprosecuted of all violent crimes, according to the Justice Department. It's also the least likely violent crime to yield a conviction. So why don't women want to press charges in a rape case? Well, 
consider what Harvey Weinstein's lawyers did to Jennifer Siebold Newsom in the trial. She's an award-winning documentary filmmaker with an MBA from Stanford University. But in, in his opening statement, defense attorney Mark Swartzman called Newsom just another bimbo who slept with Weinstein to get ahead in Hollywood. And when she testified about her alleged assault, Worksman asked Newsom to replicate for the jury the moans she said she used to get Weinstein to stop. Oh, dear. She refused, and after the verdicts, Newsom said in a statement, throughout the trial, Weinstein's lawyers used sexism, misogyny, and bullying tactics to intimidate, demean, and ridicule us survivors. The trial was a stark reminder that we as a society have work to do to all survivors out there. I see you, I hear you, and I stand with you. I'm speaking with KPCC's arts and entertainment reporter, John Horn, about the verdicts in the Harvey Weinstein L.A. trial announced yesterday afternoon, guilty on three of seven counts. John, while you were not in the courtroom when the four women testified, you have followed this case closely. What are your takeaways? Well, first of all, I mean, I'm married to a lawyer. Everybody is entitled to a good defense, regardless of what they're charged with. I thought the defense of Harvey Weinstein certainly went beyond the pale. Um, and then there's a larger issue of, you know, Hollywood and what's going to happen not only in Hollywood, but also in other businesses where people turn a blind eye on sexual assault. So Anita Hill, you might remember her from the Clarence Thomas confirmation. She chairs the Hollywood Commission, which is an organization aimed at eliminating harassment in the workplace. And she said in a statement yesterday, this is only one case. But the Weinstein verdict is a much-needed indication of our commitment to justice and individual accountability. Real progress towards safer and more equitable workplaces requires acknowledging the institutional practices and industry culture that tolerate abuse, discrimination, harassment, and bullying, end quote. Because Harvey didn't act alone. There were a lot of people who helped him or covered up his crimes, including lawyers, publicists, assistants, you name it. Uh, So there are a lot of people who helped him get away with what he got away with for a very long time. Uh, I just have to relate a personal experience I had with uh, rape charges. I was an alternate juror on a case in which a man was accused of uh, raping a former girlfriend and, in fact, the mother of his child. And I was actually quite relieved to have been an alternate because uh, I didn't have to deliberate it. It was a very difficult case. So uh, my uh, my heart goes out to these jurors whose work is not done. John Horn, thank you so much. Thank you, Suzanne. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Retake. Have a great holiday. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS Newsroom. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.